All right, all right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 411 Ground and Pound MMA podcast. We are your weekly look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. My name is Robert Winfrey. Thank you so very much for listening. I always say that, and I always appreciate it. Uh, tonight on the agenda, let's see. Last night, UFC on ESPN 41 said it. Not a great card on paper. Uh, a very thin card on paper. I shouldn't say there weren't too many fights that you looked at and went, boy, that'll suck. There was just a lot of, eh, not sure. And, eh, you know, not a bad night of fights, ultimately. Not great, but... Not a bad night of fights. Uh, the top three wound up delivering in some pretty big ways for very different reasons, though. So we'll uh, we'll get into that. This coming Saturday, UFC 278. The UFC is back, and it's not my hometown, but it's close to where I live. My home state. They're back in Salt Lake City, Utah for this one. We will be previewing that, and then, of course, whatever news of the week happens to strike my fancy. So before we get going, as always, Thank you again. Please interact with the product. Like, comment, subscribe, star rating, written review. If you've done any and all of that, uh, please share. Sharing is maybe the most important thing you can do. Let people know that you listen to the show, that you like the show, that uh, maybe they should give it a try. If you think they're interested, please point them in our direction. All right, with that little bit of... <laughs> I don't have that written out. That's just kind of wrote at this point. I've just said it so often that I kind of know it by heart. So with that out of the way, let's move on to the event. UFC on ESPN 41. In your main event. Uh, tough, man. My fandom and my respect for Dominic Cruz and what he's done for the sport is pretty well documented at this point. So Marlon Vera defeats Dominic Cruz via knockout, head kick, a few follow-up punches. Uh, what was it? 217 of the fourth round. I was a little bit backwards in my prediction on this one, and I've been trying to figure out why, and I think I think it goes the following. I I said if this were three rounds, I would have favored Vera. I think if it was three rounds, I should have favored Cruz rather than five, because a three-round fight, Cruz would have won. Uh, I'd have to double-check what the official scorecards were at the time of the stoppage, but I feel fairly confident that Cruz won the first two. Uh, maybe even the third. I didn't give him the third, but I think there's an argument to be made in there. Uh, Vera is just a guy who's a bit of a slow starter. Uh, I don't think I gave that enough. I don't think I talked about it enough. And I don't think I gave that enough kind of credence when I was uh, previewing this one. But it takes him a bit to get going. Now, the flip side to that is Marlon Vera is... I can't call him the most dangerous bantamweight in the, in the game. Because bantamweight's a very stacked division. And there's other guys who present a lot of danger. But I think Vera fights in a way that is maybe the most... I, I want to say this correctly. Like, take someone else who's a very dangerous fighter. I'm Aljamain Sterling's... If that guy gets your back, he will probably do some nasty things to you. He's very good about finding it. So he's, he's dangerous in that respect. Uh, Peter Jan is a brutal fighter. That guy will mess you up. Uh, and will smile while doing it. Like, he's a dangerous fighter. So when I say that I think Vera's a very, like, maybe the most dangerous, it's not just that he will, it's not just that he's a threat. It's that 
you know, Jan's got a few decisions under his belt in the UFC. Sterling, you know, frankly, I did not think he won that last fight with Jan, but uh, he's been the distance before. Not a knock on him. I mean, this, this is not an insult, but if I'm if I'm trying to qualify what I think it means to be the most dangerous, who's the most likely bantamweight to get a finish at the top of the UFC right now? It's not Sterling. Not saying he can't, but who's the most likely? It's not Sterling, not Dillashaw, not Sandhagen, not Jan. I think it's probably Vera. Uh, Marlon Vera is a dangerous guy to be in the cage with. Uh I don't know if he's the hardest hitter at bantamweight, but he's up there. He is definitely up there. And he's very dynamic in ways that a lot of other guys aren't. Uh, he presents threats with his punches. He's good about timing them. He's got good knees. He's got a very solid clinch game. Uh, and his kicking game, I mean, he'll kick low, he'll kick middle, he'll kick high, he'll throw front kicks, round kicks, he threw some hook kicks in this fight. Uh, he's a very, very diverse striker in that respect. You know, Jan, Jan's fairly... One of the things that makes Jan great is that he's very technically sound with his fundamentals, which makes you very, very hard to beat. And people who understand how to use the fundamentals of mixed martial arts are not predictable in the way that people who use the fundamentals of some of the uh, disparate parts of, mar of MMA are. But Jan's not the most... He's not going to surprise you very often with what he does. In kind of a broad sense, like you might, you, he clearly hits people when they are expecting not to be hit. But if you're looking at it from kind of the observer perspective or even the other fighter processing things perspective, okay, maybe you should have seen the step through coming. Maybe you should have seen the third punch at the end of that, like that kind of stuff. You know, Aljamain Sterling is, uh, I don't mean this in a negative way, but Sterling's a fairly, you kind of know what you get with Sterling. Now, does not mean he's easy to beat. In fact, he's the champion, you know, for a reason. Whether Whatever you scored that last fight with him and Jan, I think it's very... Going 3-2 to two either way is a very reasonable score. But you know, how many times is Aljamain Sterling really going to surprise you? Like, you might be lulled into a sense of timing and then realize, oh no, he's very fast at doing something. Vera will surprise you, like, oh, I never in the world, I never in a million years expected a front kick there. I never expected, like, that's what he does. Uh, there's been some people comparing him a little bit to Yoel Romero in the wake of this fight. And his last one, too, if you look at his fight with Rob Font, uh, which is a five-round unanimous decision for him, and this one, too, he was outstruck uh, by a wide margin in both of those fights. He just does so much damage that he dropping behind numerically by a bit is not the end of the world for him. He can win rounds where he's been numerically outstruck because he just causes so much more trauma when he strikes. And that does also make him a little bit more likely to finish. Now, one of the big differences between him and Romero, he's not as sedate as Romero was. Uh, he's willing, he, he's much more active than Romero. Some of this is a function of the weight class. But if there is some truth to the notion that there's a bit of similarity in that he he doesn't mind waiting a bit, doesn't mind taking time to get his reads before he really commits. Uh, in this in this one, he got Cruz back towards the fence. Cruz tried to move to his own right, dipped a little bit. Vera was standing southpaw, had a right hand coming, a jab hook kind of thing, to encourage Cruz to move to Cruz's right instead of trying to go under the punch the other direction. 
And he just had a nice left head kick lined up for him. Caught him in the face, broke his nose, like, visibly. Uh, Cruz dropped like a... First time I've ever... I said this when about the fight between Cruz and Henry Cejudo. I didn't love the stoppage, but I can live with it. Not my favorite, but somewhat understandable. Uh, Cruz was out for this one. Like, he was legitimately unconscious for a second or two there. Uh, Vera hits hard, and he's, he's pretty good about making his reads. You know, figuring out, trying to get a good read on Dominic Cruz is very, very difficult. He had a few different... Uh, places where he was able to time Cruz. Uh, one of the things that he struggled with, and most people struggle with when they fight Dominic, it's not that you can't find him on occasion, it's trying to find him consistently that's the problem. And Vera had a little bit of that. He couldn't quite find the find Dominic Cruz consistently. Cruz came out hot in this fight, man. Cruz was on, he was amped up. Came out with strong kicks, because Dominic Cruz does not have a lot of punching power, but kicks and flurries... I had Cruz winning. I thought he won the first two rounds. But Vera's patience and Vera... You know, I talked about Dominic Cruz having a great chin last week when we previewed this fight. He still does. I mean, the kick that he ate was... Not just a brutal blow in and of itself, which it was. It was the culmination of other bits of damage adding up along the way. Plenty of other people fighting Vera would have been done in, you know, the first... It was a really stiff jab in the first. Uh, there was a right hand, I think, in the third. That kind of sat Cruz down for a second. There, there were a few other places where people, where other top fighters would have not been able to recover, whereas Cruz did. But Vera's tough as nails, too, man. That guy just unflappable. He got hit with some shots, and one of the knocks on Cruz, and this is not really his fault, but the guy just doesn't hit very hard. And it's been something that's kind of dogged his career because... If he was, if if he could hit just like 50% harder, he'd be, a, he would have, even in this fight, might have gone very, very differently, but he just never had a lot of power. And, and it's unfortunate, but it is just kind of reality. Uh, so, nice finish from Vera. I, I saw this on Twitter, actually. Uh, the head coach of, I think it's Extreme Couture, Eric Nixick, mentioned that you know, he said on Twitter a little bit before the stoppage. You know, Cruz, when he dips out to his right, tends to you know, bend his level and keeps his right hand low instead of bringing it up to protect, and a left head kick might be a good way to answer that. Exactly right. You know, the guy's the head coach at a major MMA gym for a reason. So, uh, I don't know what, how much longer Dominic Cruz is going to be doing this. He's 37. I mean... Is he 37, almost 38, or is he recently 37? Uh, March? So, more recently 37, but... You know, that's... That's getting close to halfway between 37 and 38. Not exactly halfway, but he's getting closer to it. Um... This is a division that does not reward people who hang around the way other divisions do. His style was always was always somewhat predicated on a degree of athleticism that, it, not not in totality. You know, this is not like Roy Jones, where as soon as the reflexes uh, start to fade, everything falls apart. It's not quite that. But if he wants to fight at the top of the division, you know, he's not. It, there's a 
there's just that margin for error that gets really, really, really small. And whereas before he could make up for it with the with athleticism and some of his physical tools, I just don't think he has that anymore. And it's unfortunate. Uh, it really sucks that this guy was robbed of like two years or so of his absolute prime. Uh, just with knee injuries and whatnot, it's a real shame. Because I think if he's active for that period of time, he strings together a long enough, you know, more names and a long enough resume that he would be getting the respect that he deserves. You know, this is a guy we should be talking about the same way we talk about Anderson Silva or George St. Pierre. And unfortunately, just circumstances, again, they robbed him of that. And it sucks. It really, really sucks. But I... I I don't know how much longer he's going to be able to you know, continue to do this. I don't know how much longer he's going to want to do this if the title is out of his reach. Now, how much he believes it's out of his reach or not, you know, that I don't know for sure. He did not look bad here uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but I, I do think you know, we're looking at the last handful of fights for him in all, in all probability. It, it's just... You know, the game's caught up to him, and he brought the game along in a lot of very real ways. Uh, I've said this before about Cruz, and I'm going to reiterate it here. I'm not trying to eulogize the guy's career prematurely, but not only did he expose a lot of people to what it means to actually have good footwork and good angle management and whatnot in MMA, he's a guy who significantly overachieved. If you look at his physical tools relative to what a lot of other people have in MMA, he does, he, by all rights, should not have been a champion. He's not a dominant wrestler. He's got good takedowns, but he's not a dominant wrestler. He doesn't have crushing ground and pound. He's not a submission threat by most standards, but he knows some jujitsu. He's not got a tremendous amount of power in his punches. He's not some dominant clinch force. You know, there, there's... N by all, especially when he was starting out, when he kind of got to the top of the WEC all those years ago, uh, he didn't have, it was dominated by guys like, uh, you know, you had the Team Alpha Male guys, obviously. Uh, you had guys like Brian Bowles and Mike Brown, just, you know, strong wrestlers with hammers for fists. Uh, or, or the very, very dynamic buzzsaws. And Cruz was never, just was never kind of one of those guys. But through a combination of the athletic gifts that he did possess and his understanding of the fight game, he created a style that fit what he wanted to do. And he consequently overachieved in ways that are frankly astounding. If you were to just look at what he's got physically relative to other MMA fighters, yeah, he probably should not have achieved the way that he did, but because his mind is so strong... And because his strategy so was was so good, he was able to overcome a lot of those uh, a lot of those hurdles. And that needs to be discussed more. You know, this is not a guy who gets the res I, I I don't think he's a guy that just gets the respect that he should get. As maybe the I tend to think he's the best bantamweight ever. He's the bantamweight greatest. Best at the moment? No, I, I don't think he's the best bantamweight in the world right now. Probably hasn't been for a little bit. But that's not what that title's about. You know, that's what the champion's for. If you want to talk about the all-time greatest, it's not always the current belt holder. So, as far as Vera goes, big win for him, big finish. Uh, 
I don't know if he gets the next title shot. There's a there's a lot going on at Bantamweight right now. You you got Piotr Jan and Sean O'Malley that are going to fight. You've we're still kind of waiting on Dillashaw uh, and Sterling. We don't know what's going to happen there. Uh, Corey Sandhagen, I believe, does he have a fight coming up? Double check. I know he's kind of in the mix. Uh, yeah, he's, yeah, Corey Sandhagen is fighting Song Yadong. Ooh. Yeah, they're the main event for a September card. That's a good fight. It's a really good fight, actually. I mean, if Song wins that, ooh boy. It'll be a big win for him. So you, you got Sandhagen, who might still factor in. And you got Vera now with this. Uh, yep, there's a lot of moving pieces. But you, know, you couldn't... You couldn't ask Vera to do any more. You, know, you go out there, you finish a guy who's very, very hard to finish. Uh, and there's no controversy around this one, guys. You know, there was no controversy about this stoppage whatsoever. And you do that, uh, on the run that he's on. You know, that guy hasn't lost at bantamweight in a long time. He's got this weird loss that was at featherweight. Uh, yeah, he fought Song. They both wound up fighting at featherweight. Um, people thought he won that one. I didn't, but yeah, he lost to Jose Aldo. Boy, Jose Aldo in 2020, beating Marlon Vera. That win is aging very, very well. I might actually. It's not a knock on Vera, but I think the way their stylistic matchup, three rounds between those two, that might just favor Aldo every time. But yeah, Vera, that's his only loss at bantamweight since he fought Douglas Silva de Andrade in 2018. A lot of fights since then, too. That's not just years. That's a lot of fights. If you look at his record, like that guy stayed busy. Uh, he finished Frankie Edgar not that long ago. And finishing Frankie Edgar in 2021 is not what it used to be, but it's still not the easiest job in the world. Beat up Rob Font over, you know, five rounds. I mean, he's got... Yes, the um, he's the most finishes in bantamweight history in the UFC. Second most knockouts. If you again, if you kind of mix his knockouts and submissions, he's the second most. But finishes overall, he's got the most. And you tell me that's not the most dangerous guy to fight in that weight class. He will get you out of there. And maybe not everybody he's fought has been at the top of the. He's been at the highest level. His last few have been in the, that escalating level of competition. But uh. Yeah, he's <laughs> that guy is a serious problem. Frank, I would not be surprised if he wears gold at some point. I don't know how likely it is. Um, Sterling, he's not fought a real dedicated wrestler in a while. His takedown defense has improved a lot, but uh, he still does a lot of kind of traditional takedown defense. Whereas, if you look at how Aljamain Sterling wrestles, it's not really the same. Um, Sterling, and there's a few other guys who have done this. Sterling's kind of the chief. He's an easy... I'm going to use him because he's in the same division, and it's a fairly easy reference point for a lot of people, but he's not the only one who does this. There's a lot of guys nowadays who are, when they go for takedowns, they're not looking for the traditional wrestling finish. They don't even necessarily need to complete the takedown in any kind of uh, meaningful way. But if your defense to the takedown involves turning your back a little bit, they will abandon their takedown and just jump on it. They're, they're not looking for your hips or your shoulders to hit the mat. 
or even your knees necessarily. They're looking for you to expose your back. They're just looking for that exposure, and then they jump on that. Um, Khabib would do this on occasion. Uh, Khabib's takedowns were just a different animal in a lot of respects, but if you look at some of his fights, he would do this because he was just so... I mean, desperate, desperate implies a degree of um, lack of control or like, oh, please, you know... But when I say he was desperate to make contact, you know, it's because that's where he was the best. But he was so committed to making, to getting a grip around you, to making physical contact, that if you defended his single leg, if you were limp-legging, you know, he'd screw your leg, grab your back. And you saw Aljamain Sterling do that to Piotr Jan in their rematch over and over and over again. If we're just talking, you know, strict wrestling defense, Jan is stuffing the majority of Sterling's attacks. But whenever he goes to kind of limp leg away from a single, he's turning, and that, which is one of the ways you limp leg. And every time he exposes his back, Sterling was just, nope, screw this. Screw everything about trying to finish the traditional takedown. That's what I want. And just jumped on Jan's back, and Jan could not. He struggled mightily to get him off. I don't know how Vera would do against that. If you're just trying to double leg the guy or even single leg him, He's pretty good about staying upright. Uh, Cruz is great about timing his takedowns and about finishing them. Getting control, not quite as much, but you know, he, he got Vera down in the first, and he struggled. I don't think he got him all that close on subsequent attempts later on in the fight. So Vera's, good. Vera's very good that way. So I don't know how he deal with a wrestler like Sterling. I don't know how he deal with a, a very slick technician like Piotr Jan, but... You can't tell me that at this point he hasn't earned the right to fight those guys. He absolutely has. So, And I would not be surprised. I'll say it again. Would not be surprised one bit if he takes that belt at some point. He is that dangerous a fighter. He is in every, he is in every fight for every minute of it. You cannot sleep on that guy. You cannot get lackadaisical. You've got to mind your P's and Q's the whole way or he will hurt you badly. Great win for Marlon Vera. Uh, very much looking forward to seeing what he does next. Sucks for Dominic Cruz. Don't know how much longer we're going to have him actively fighting. Uh, but solid main event. I, was, I enjoyed the main event uh, probably more than anything else, but we'll get to your fight of the night up next, because co-main event... Nate Landwehr defeated David Onama via majority decision, 128-28 and 229-27s. My scorecard was actually 28-27. I gave Onama a 10-8 first. It's a little bit generous on my part, and I don't... Anyone that only went 10-9, I can see how Landwehr, towards the end of that round, might have rallied to avoid it, but Landwehr got hurt bad in that first round. He got clobbered, I think it was a right hand. Uh, he was all over the place, you know, on skates, struggling. Onama went to finish him, couldn't quite put him away. And towards the end of that round, Landwehr started coming back. So if you thought Landwehr regained that point, I, I understand. Second round is a, a clearly a unanimous 10-8 for Landwehr. I mean, uh, just put a pace on Onama, and Onama was gassed. Uh, took him down repeatedly. Landed just... Uh, stuff in the clinch, just knees, elbows, dirty boxing style, you know, hockey uppercuts, just busy, 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 offense, offense, offense. Uh, Onama nearly would, ref could have stopped this one a couple of different points uh, in the second round. And I, 
I don't think there would have been an outcry, but Onama doesn't have to survive. Between rounds two and three, Onama's coach, which is uh, James Krause, was asking him, like, do you want to fight? You, know, you, you didn't say that, but you, you got your butt kicked. You, you want to go back out there. And Onama never gave an affirmative yes, but he never said no. And whatever Krause was kind of looking at or reading off of him as they're talking was enough for him to feel okay about sending his man back out. And third round, Onama comes back out, got a little bit more pep in his step. Lands a couple of bombs on Landwer, but Landwer just kind of eats them, keeps going. Volume hurts Onama, starts wearing him down, takes him down a few different times. Some bad fight management from uh, Landwer down the stretch. It didn't cost him, but it could have. Towards the end of the third, he gets a takedown and gets side control. And spends about 15 seconds there before he voluntarily stands up, plays to the crowd, wants Onama to get back on his feet. This was We were down to about a minute or so left in the round, I think. Might have been sub one minute, but it was somewhere between a minute and like, 50, and like 45 seconds. So enough time to do something with the position. And to really solidify a round that had been a little bit back and forth. You know, Onama had success in that third round. And Landward is like, no, let me give up a very solid dominant position. Uh, bear in mind, when I say... I, I don't think he needed to just lay there and ride out the round, put air quotes around that. You don't have to just hold the guy down and just wait for that last bit of time to run out. You can do damage from there, but he chose not to. Uh, ultimately, it doesn't cost him. I just mentioned it could have. That, that one judge who was 28-28. Yeah, you. there's an argument for Onama in the third. I don't know that it's the most compelling argument in the world, but there is a case to be made. This, that... That boneheaded decision could have cost Nate Landwehr big time. Uh, big time. So Landwehr gave, you know, his uh, tr usual kind of crazy-filled post-fight speech. You know, fine enough. Like, the guy, after the fight, he said, you know, I'll, I'll throw it down with Billy Q and then downgrade Hurricane Shane to a tropical, to, to just, you know, a thunderstorm. Nice line. I mean, I'm down for watching Nate Landwehr fight. Dude's a, dude's a maniac. Him versus either Billy Quarantillo or Shane Burgos. Yeah, sign me up. Uh, those are just fan-friendly fights all night long. That those either of those matchups. That would be that'd be solid. Uh, I give credit to Onama for gutting through that second round and still coming out in the third. Uh, he's one of those guys who I, I can't say that he came to the UFC too early in the traditional sense. He came in and he was I think. Uh, 9-0. and oh. That might have been a little bit early. But, he, I mean, he's got some wins in the UFC. I think he's 2-2 two and two now. Uh, so he can clearly win at this level. But uh, he might learn from this and come back even stronger. Yeah, that's very possible. But he, there's a little bit of a lack of refinement to his overall game that I just, I wonder... I wonder how well his career is being serviced by having to make some of these refinements and adjustments in the UFC rather than on a smaller stage. Now, then again, you, you look at how good he was on you know, the more regional scene. Might have been getting to the point where they were struggling to find him fights. And if that's the case, then, well, you you step up. That's all you can do. So 
Uh, just wanted to note that, but Onama still still has a fair amount of ability. He's a lanky guy. He's a, got power. Uh, let's see how he rebounds from this, but uh, this was your fight of the night. This was a wild, sloppy... As soon as we get into the second round of this fight, like around the time the second round's ending, and you just know, like, this is everything Dana White loves as a fight fan. So this was getting fight of the night. And I'm not even objecting to it. This wasn't my fight of the night, but the main event was probably mine. But uh, I'm not going to object to you know, I'm not. I'm not crying. I don't think anybody got screwed by giving it to those two guys. They went out there and they had kind of a pro wrestling match for, uh, in some respects, so. And that's really what Dana White wants, professional wrestling that's not fixed. And if he could fix it and get away with it, he probably would. <laughs> but he, he wants fights that do what professional wrestling does in terms of physical storytelling. And he'll never admit that, because, of course, he won't. But that's what, I mean, most promoters want that. I, I shouldn't just say that about Dana White like he is some aberration when it comes to fight promotion. And if you think Scott, I mean, Scott Coker kind of... If you look at Scott Coker cards, there's a big chunk of them where it's like, okay, who who's the favorable matchmaking going to? So that's not, and that's not knocking Scott Coker. You know, I, I don't have anything against the guy. I am just pointing out that this is this is a thing that promoters do. So, uh, if you didn't see that one, look it up. It's a wild, sloppy, good time. Uh, what might have been your fight of the night, if not for Landwehr and Onama? Uh, Yasmin Hauregi. I'm going with Hauregi. That's kind of... I think that's how Brandon Fitzgerald was pronouncing it. But I... I mean, look, when you've got even, you know, uh, the great Grabaka Hitman, you know, Kaposa on Twitter going, okay, not only are all three of the UFC commentators, this was uh, Fitzgerald, Daniel Cormier, and Michael Bisming. I'll yell about Cormier in a minute. Uh, because, boy, was he bad last night. Well, on this event. He was just not good. Not only are all three of them each pronouncing it differently, but uh, you know, nobody watches more M more combat sports in general than Kaposa. And when he's like, okay, I've heard different commentators from her regional career, which took place in Mexico. Like, <laughs> if... Because uh, she, uh, she's Mexican. Uh, if you've got different people... And look, Mexico's a large place, and there's different regional accents and whatnot that go into all kinds of stuff like this. Kind of the long and the short of it there is, if you've got different people from who speak that language natively who are struggling to pronounce your name, like I'm going with Hauregi and that's what I'm doing until I hear John Anik pronounce it on a broadcast because I know Anik's preparation for this. For those of you who don't know, John Anik, if he's not sure how to pronounce someone's last name, he will go to them and say, "Please pronounce your name for me into this tape recorder." You know, recorder. Like, it doesn't have to be taped, but into this, give me a recording of you saying your name, and then he listens to that and repeats it until he feels comfortable saying it the way they say it. And I don't know if Fitzgerald does the same thing, and that's not me knocking Brendan Fitzgerald. He very well might. I just know for a fact that that's what John Anik does. So, point being there, I'm going with Hauregi. Uh She and uh, Yasmin Lucindo. Uh, they had a little bit of a barn burner here. Uh, Lucindo, the larger woman, a little bit more punching power, but a lot sloppier with her technique. Uh, Hauregi was doing a really good job of kind of getting in and out. 
Haregi's accuracy was what made a lot of the difference here. She hurt Lucindo in both the first and third. I actually gave Haregi all three rounds. Uh, the second round was close, though. second round, I think, was the one that I thought was close. But this was... Women's strawweight is the best women's division in the sport. Uh, by a pretty significant margin. So you get these two coming in and they turn in this kind of performance. Uh, just a little bit of matchmaking magic here happened when these two fought. Darn good fight. Another one worth looking up if you haven't seen it already. Uh, light heavyweight. Azamat Mirzakhanov defeated Devin Clark via TKO. Punches 118 of the third. Brutal body shot here from Mirzakhanov that ended this. Uh, Mirzakhanov was having a really good fight. All fight, actually. Did a lot of body work along the way. He uh, was landing okay with his left hand on the feet. Clark kind of... I mean, Devin Clark is just a weird guy who, to try and get a handle on uh, career-wise. He's got these weird... He, some fights that he loses, you expect him to lose. And he's got these other performances that just don't make sense. Uh, Merzikhanov, it got him down at one point. It was hammering him to the body uh, from half guard, I think it was. Short uh, yeah, it was like short elbow with the right hand that was kind of cross-faced on, uh, kind of cross-faced. And then when he wasn't going to elbow with that, he was just dropping lefts to the body just over and over and over again. That was really, uh, he just, he was committed to body work kind of throughout. And then finally gets Clark backed up against the fence and swings a left right to the solar plexus, uh, Clark drops immediately. Took Frank Trigg, who was the ref, like five or ten punches more than it should have to stop this, but late stoppage there from Frank, from the referee. And again, in this case, Frank Trigg. Late stoppage, but solid win from Berzakhanov, who is a very serious, uh, I guess a serious prospect at light heavyweight. I don't know how high he's going to go, but uh, I don't know if he's, I don't even know if he's going to stick around light heavyweight. Um, if you looked at him here, a bit smaller than Devin Clark by a decent enough margin, and even commentary mentioned uh, that Merzakhanov has told them he could make 185, but it takes it, it takes time and effort to get down to 185, and he'd rather, if it means he can fight more frequently, he'd rather just fight at 205, which is you know, a career calculus that only he can make. But uh, so I don't know exactly how high he goes at 205. I don't know how long he stays at 205, but... Uh, that's a that dude's legit. He's very legit. Uh, women's bantamweight Priscilla Cashwaya defeated Ariadne Lipsky via TKO punches 105 of the first. This fight sucked. Cashwaya uh, kind of got Lipsky hurt, and Lipsky just put her back on the fence, kept her head in the middle, and started swinging punches in what is theoretically a 50-50 exchange. But I've got news for everyone who trades in the pocket like this: those aren't 50-50 exchanges if you're not moving your head and the other fighter is. And Lipsky just kept her head dead center on the center line. Starts swinging left, right, left, right, left, right, and just got clobbered. Uh, if your head's on the center line like that and not moving, you don't need to look at it to hit the target. It's kind of why you're supposed to move your head. So, uh, yeah, fight sucked. I don't have anything positive to say about either. Here's the only thing I'm going to say about this. I don't know why the odds makers had Lipsky as a favorite. I mean, I might have picked her here, but... If I'm a betting guy and I see Priscilla Cashwaya versus Ariane Lipsky and I get plus money on Cashwaya, that's an easy bet. That's an easy bet. 
this they took this fight took place at Bantamweight. Both are normally flyweights. They were supposed to fight last week. It got bumped to this one, so they agreed to fight at the next weight class up. Uh, and kicking off the main card, Gerald Mershart defeated Bruno Silva with a, with a guillotine choke, 139 of the third. He landed a pretty decent uh, left hand, uh, kind of clobbered Silva with a left that dropped him. Went to finish. Silva kind of tried to sit up in, gar- in a guard, grab around the waist. Mershart wasn't having any of that. Pummeled through, got, grabbed the guillotine, got the finish. Uh, Silva did not look good here. Um, he really did not look good. I, wa- I wonder how much that loss to Alex Pereja may have taken out of him. Just a thought. Uh, you know, Gerald Mershart's a good kind of journeyman, gatekeeper, middle of the road uh, might occasionally crack the top 15, but he's almost certainly never going to crack the top 10 kind of guy to have on the roster. Good win for Mershart. Uh, not a terrible fight, but nothing that really sticks out to you. Uh, on the prelims, Angela Hill defeated Lupita Godinez via unanimous decision, 29-28 across the board. I scored this for Godinez. I thought I thought uh, Godinez did enough to win the third, but giving it to Hill is not wrong. Uh, I don't have a whole lot to say about this one. See, oh, this one. I do not understand this one. Uh, Martin Budai defeated Lucas Dresky via split decision. These were 29-28s. I do not understand scoring this fight for Martin Budai. Budai, sorry, Budai. Don't understand it. Uh, I thought Dresky had the first two pretty easily. Uh, This one, this was clucky. This was cluckified. No two ways about it. I do not understand the scoring here. Uh, not at all. Don't understand it one iota. Uh, other than that, low-level heavyweight fight. Uh, women's flyweight Nina Nunes defeated Cynthia Calvillo uh, via split decision. It was a 29-28 each way and then a 30-27 for Nunes. Um, this fight was not good. It's not a good fight. It suffered a little bit also because every fight before it was kind of either featured a quick finish or was you know a fairly decent action fight. And then you get these two doing the typical women's MMA thing of endless circling and shadow boxing. Uh, Nunes retired after this said she wants to have another kid and focus on coaching and being a mom. God bless her. Uh, you know. Uh, if, you know, to, to steal the WWE line, you know, good luck in your future endeavors. I, I've never been a big fan of Nina, either as Nunez or Ansaroff, which was her maiden name. She took uh, Amanda Nunez's name when they got married. Never been the biggest fan of hers, but uh, she never did anything to really annoy me. So, and you know, you know, wish her the best of luck. Uh, this might be a backbreaking loss for Calvillo, who was just not been able to mount any kind of sustained momentum in a couple of years at this point. Yeah, she's on a four-fight losing streak. Uh, Yeah, her last win was June of 2020 when she beat Jessica I, which doesn't mean much of anything. Had a draw with Marina Rodriguez before that. Uh, That was at straw weight, and she missed weight. But she moved up to flyweight. Yeah, her flyweight record in the UFC is four is one and four. Um, I don't know. Another fighter maybe came to, 
I don't think this is much of a stretch to say that she came to the UFC too early. She came to the UFC in her fourth professional fight. Uh, now she had six. She had six um, amateur fights, which helps. But I imagine she was one of those that they were struggling to find her opponents, and you just kind of had to suck it up. But yeah. She bounced around between camps for a bit. She just, she had a lot of momentum at one point in time. Then she lost to Carlos Esparza. That kind of derailed it. She didn't look great against Pollyanna Botelho. Didn't look great against Courtney Casey, even in wins. Uh, yeah, just... She looked okay against Botelho now that I think about it. But yeah, the Casey fight did not look great. I, I don't know what we do with her at this point. Uh, let's see, lightweight. Gabriel Benitez defeated Charlie Ontiveros via TKO uh, punches, 335 of the first. Solid stuff from Benitez here. Uh, you know, Ontiveros, Ontiveros came out hard, man. Uh, he does a lot of kind of the Taekwondo-style karate kicks. I mean, Taekwondo and karate are not the same thing. Even though so... Even though all... like, You'll never walk by a, a, a martial arts school that... Uh, you'll never walk by a Taekwondo school. And have it say Taekwondo on the outside. It will just say Karate. <laughs> Even though they are very much not the same thing. Uh, which is not a knock on... Like, that's, just, that's just name recognition and marketing. I, I get it. It's the same reason so many you know uh, martial arts schools will put self-defense as one of the things they offer. And then not really go into self-defense. Like, you know how to fight, you know how to defend yourself. Well... I'd rather know how to fight if I have to fight and defend myself than not, but there's a lot more that goes into it than that. Uh, anyway, he came out, he had a nice little axe kick at one point. Like, he was on it, and then Benitez just started throwing hands at him and caught him a couple of times. Hit this just ugly, and I mean this in a good way. Takedown. He hurt. Ontiveros is hurt. Benitez grabs him for a double leg, lifts him up, and does not even do the, like, I follow you down with my slam. Just picks him up and throws him down like a sack of potatoes. And if you threw any potatoes like that, you'd be yelled at by your produce manager. Like, just up and then just tossed him to the ground. Uh, pounded him out from top position. Essentially the predicted outcome here. Flyweight. This one... I was not surprised that Ode Osborne was the favorite. I was a little bit surprised of how heavy a favorite he was. But Tyson Nam defeats Ode Osborne via knockout punches, 259 of the first round. Um, Osborne looked okay. But he kept, he showed a flying knee one too many times. Then he threw it, and it's a bit of a truism. And this is not only true of uh, MMA, where you see a lot more flying techniques. This is true of football. This is true of soccer. Uh, this is true of basketball. It's less of an issue in basketball because while basketball is not nearly as... Uh, I don't mean to say that basketball is not a physical game. It absolutely is. You just don't have to worry about some of the other things that in basketball that you do in some of the other sports I mentioned. Um, true in rugby. You don't see it as much in rugby, but it's true of rugby. If you're in the air, you're kind of defenseless. If you throw a flying technique, I'm not opposed to them. Uh, there are a lot of... They carry a lot of power. Carry a lot of power. They have their places. They have their uses. 
The downside is if your opponent reads it, they know exactly where you're going to be. And once you leave the ground, you are now beholden to the laws of physics in ways that uh, you are less so when you have your feet under you. I mean, you're still beholden to the laws of physics, but uh, what, what's the line? Um, uh, you jump. You essentially are putting Sir Isaac Newton in the driver's seat. <laughs> you lose all ability to realistically control what's going on. You push yourself with a certain amount of force in a certain direction at a certain angle. You're going to land in a certain place, and it's not terribly difficult to figure out. Right? Uh, Tyson Nam sees this jumping knee coming, knows it's a little bit out of range, so he takes a half step back to um, Osborne with Southpaw. So Nam fades to his own right. Little bit back in like a 45 degree angle, so there's no chance of that knee landing, and swings a right hand that, as Osborne lands, his feet hit the ground, that punch hits his jaw, and he hits the floor. Uh, again, if you're going to throw a, a flying technique out there, not saying don't do it, I'm saying there are consequences. Uh, just somewhat. Um, random timing because uh, somebody I was sparring with over the week I don't talk about my own training a whole lot because it seems there's no point to it like I'm not a professional <laughs> I train because I enjoy it full stop and unless it has bearing on what I'm doing I don't talk about it here but this last week there was a minor incident uh, sparring with someone they threw a chicken kick I parried it, and as I parried it, I wound up kind of pulling them forward in addition to moving the kick to the side, which is what I was trying to do. I was trying to you know, get it out of the way. And instead, I kind of wound up hooking behind the ankle a little bit, behind the heel, and they came pulling the leg forward. Well, suddenly, you know, your center of gravity is a bit more forward, and you kind of you know, fall backwards instead of landing on your feet. You uh, kind of take a pro wrestling bump. And... <laughs> Fortunately, my sparring partner reached down instead of taking a break fall and dislocated a couple of fingers on the landing. Uh, she's fine. She's fine. But, uh, yeah, that, that happens. So when you're in the air, just be careful. Because bad things can happen to you. You, you surrender all ability to have any say over a lot of stuff that's very important when you fight. Uh, also on the knockouts... Good grief. Josh Quinlan knocks out Jason Witt with a left hook. 209 to the first. Witt just gets very predictable throwing a kind of dis call it displaced or a step up. Uh, he's standing orthodox. His right foot comes to his left. There might have been a little bit of a switch step in there too to try and build power. Uh, either way, kind of brings his right foot to his left. Left come back, comes back a little bit and he wants to throw a powerful left roundhouse to the body. Which is a fine enough technique, but two problems. One, this is the big one for me. He dropped his hands a lot when he threw this kick. Uh, again, at the at the school I take, I train at, I help teach kids, and I, there's a constant refrain when you're throwing kicks because one of the default positions you try to do when you start kicking, if you're not used to being on one leg, your hands go out because you think it helps you balance. And you kind of need your hands up to protect your head. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
So you, you try to break, especially small, especially kids. Like you want to curb that habit real fast. You throw in the kick, keep your hands up. Keep your hands up. Keep your hands up. Get one to the other, or occasionally me if I'm not if I'm not in charge for the day. Like okay, take a pool noodle, stand off to the side of the kid, and every time they throw the kick and their hands come down, you swing the pool noodle at their head. Yep, keep your hands up. Keep your hands up. <laughs> uh, his hands just nope all over the place. He also telegraphed this pretty badly. Like his uh, his switch, the little bit of that switch step he took, the stutter step kind of switch. Very, very obvious. Uh, Quinlan had a read on that from a mile away. Just stepped in a little bit and left hook to the jaw, cleaned his clock, had him dead to rights for a follow-up punch, and pulled up. Like, uh, so credit to Quinlan on that one. That was a brutal knockout. So solid KO from Quinlan. Nice debut. Kicking everything off, Damon Blackshear and Yusuf Zalal fought to a majority draw. There was one 29-28 for Blackshear and then two 28-28s. Perfectly okay with the draw scorecard in this one. Uh, I forget where the 10-8 could have gone. I scored it for Blackshear, I seem to recall. But the draw, I think, is probably more accurate. Um, it was, was it the third that could have been 10-8? I forget. I, I genuinely forget which round. But there was one of them, like, okay... And if you went the other way, if you went the other way on the first two, like I, I can live with it. I, I think it's a fine scorecard. So it was a good fight too. Though. Like that was a pretty darn good fight actually to kick things off. So yeah, that was the event. Your bonuses, fight of the night. I mentioned Nate Landwehr and David Onama. Performances went to Marlon Vera and Tyson Nam. Josh Quinlan got screwed a little bit here. Um, more than a little bit. That was. Uh, yeah, th there were some good finishes. You know, somebody was going to get screwed. And unfortunately, it was Quinlan. Um, because this took place in San Diego, in the state of California, the California State Athletic Commission does still disclose fighter payouts. So we know what each fighter was paid for this one. The total fighter payout for the entire event was $1.7 million. Uh, so I'm not going to go through the whole list here. The only thing I'm going to say is you know, Dominic Cruz made $175,000 for this. If your former, if a former champion and ranked contender in your organization is making less to fight than you have on hand to frivolously give to some friend of your son's, I tend to think that's a problem with that. And I bring this up only a little bit because Dana White did an interview with GQ magazine and did his usual spiel on, no, fighters in the UFC are paid. They get what they're supposed to get. They eat what they kill, which is all a load of crap. Uh, and I'm not even going to pretend that $175,000 isn't a lot of money. It's a lot of money. If I got a check for that, I would be over the freaking moon. I'm not pretending otherwise. But we're not talking about me. We're talking about a top-tier former champion star attraction athlete uh, in which case yeah that's it's not great uh the number of people here who also the the people who get in on the contender series i hope you've got a good agent or a manager or whatever the terminology is you want to use because every pretty much everyone who comes in from the contender series it starts starts out fighting for 10 and 10 or 12 and 12 if you're lucky 
And the danger there becomes how long is that first deal? Um, I mentioned this before about, uh, I think it was Antonio Carlos Jr., who said that in his first couple of fights for the PFL, he made more than his entire UFC career. And I'm a, it's not a surprise. I'm a little bit, you know, snarky about what the UFC pays its fighters in some respects, but that did kind of catch my attention because he was there for a while. You know, that's not a guy who's like, okay, I fought for, you know, two years in the UFC. I had, you know, somewhere between four and six fights. Like, that wouldn't have, that would not surprise me at all. But for a guy who was there for as long as he was, to say that, like, I, it gave me a bit of pause. So when I looked into further what he said, like, that was the headline. So what did he actually say? He explained that, you know, his agent got him a terrible deal coming off of that season of The Ultimate Fighter. It was like a 10 or a 13, like a 10 fight deal. And, <laughs> you know, suddenly, yeah, like if you're fight, if you have 10 fights at what the UFC is offering you coming off of tough, which is probably like 12 and 12, maybe 15 and 15. Uh, 20 and 20 at the outside. Maybe. Like, yeah, if you're stuck with that for 10 fights, the UFC, when you get to like, two fights before your last deal, they might be willing to talk with you. Other than that, up until that point, no, you signed that contract, that's what they're going to give you. Like, that's just kind of how they are. And, I mean, to be abundantly clear, that's not illegal. You know, so if you're coming off the Contender Series, I hope you got a short contract, because if you sign, like, a six-fight deal, they're going to make you fight four times minimum on that 10 and 10 salary. Uh, yeah, so, just bringing it up again, uh, there's more than a few boxers who individually will make more than the UFC paid this entire fight card for one fight. I'm I'm not just talking about, like, Canelo, right? Like, sure, guys like Canelo, Tyson Fury, you know, the the real top of the food chain guys, yeah, they, they make a lot more in boxing than anyone even sniffs in the UFC over their entire career. But there's some other guys who are not maybe, you know, that top that make more than 1.7 per fight. So, yeah. UFC is still paying less than 20% uh, annual revenue (laughs) on fighter compensation. Whatever they include fighter compensation in. All right. All I'm going to say about that one uh, was a good event. Uh, Again, there were some duds along the way, but... Yeah, for the most part, you got some good finishes out of this card. And I'll take that when I don't have anything else to look forward to about the card. And the the last three fights in particular really delivered. So, if you want my full report, it's in the MMA Zone of 411mania.com. That includes my round-by-round scoring and clips of the finishes if they're put up by official outlets. So, give that a read if you are so inclined. All right. Let us move on, because... This Saturday, the UFC, as I mentioned, back in Salt Lake City. They're at the uh, the Vivint Arena, which is formerly the Delta Center. Uh, they will, and we have UFC 278 main event. Um, yeah, for the record, the top three fights on this card are pretty darn good. Lower, not so much. Lower, not so much. <laughs> but those top three main event. Welterweight champion, current pound-for-pound pound number one officially. 
Uh, not my pound for pound number one, but he's number two. Like I, I put Volkanovski above him because of how I, what I think pound for pound is, and how I choose to uh, apply. Because pound for pound is a weird. It's weird because two people can be discussing who they think is you know, discussing pound for pound stuff, and mean totally different things. So how I choose to interpret that discussion, I have Volkanovski number one, personally. I don't object to Kamaru being number one, especially if we're talking about a slightly different uh, application of criteria, then Usman would be number one. But he's going for his, what, number five or six title defense? Let's see, one, two, three, four. Yeah, he's going for six. It's a good number to get to. Uh, it's a really good number. I mean, the man is not, he's lost once in his entire career, his second ever professional fight. So he's on like a, what, 19 fight winning streak? Been with the UFC since 2005, not come all that close to losing. Uh, yeah, he's not come close to losing. The closest he's come to losing was maybe his last fight, the, the rematch with Colby Covington that went the distance. I actually scored that for Covington. But that's the closest he's come to losing. Um, the first fight with Covington, you know, if that had gone all the way to the judges, I think he wins that on the scorecard, but it's split. I mean, it's, it's split because we know what the scores were going into the fifth. So one of the judges, kind of by definition, would have had it for Covington because he had Covington three rounds to one going into the fifth. Uh, but yeah, he's not been all that close to losing. Uh, so, when I say I'm favoring him to beat Leon Edwards, who is his opponent, uh, these two fought, jeez, how long ago? These two fought back in 2016, 15? 15. They fought on the same card where Rafael Dos Anjos uh, defended his title at lightweight against Donald Cerrone. Like a lifetime ago, man. I remember that card. Um, and he he uh, comprehensively out wrestled Leon Edwards. Edwards was nowhere near ready for that level of grappling. By his own admission, was not ready for that. Edwards has gotten a lot better since then, as has Usman. Um, there's been a bit of pushback online uh, about Leon Edwards. Actually, there's some people who just you know found clips and highlights of some of his stuff going, look at this, how can you think this guy's a boring fighter? A couple of things about that. And I'm going to talk about Edwards here for some very specific reasons, so kind of bear with me. Um, Edwards has, the reputation that Edwards has as a boring fighter is a little bit overstated. A little bit. It tends to, it's a lot of a byproduct of a different period in his career. And... This is true of a lot of MMA fighters, by the way. I don't know what it is about MMA in general, but it is very, very difficult for an MMA fighter to shake the reputation that they get after two fights. Uh, especially if we're talking like the UFC. Look at how many people, look at for how long Lyoto Machida was called a boring point fighter. Uh, which was not true. Uh, and he's not the only one. Um, 
for crying out loud, Charles Oliveira. That guy spent years formulating a reputation as a little bit frail. You know, a guy who struggled to overcome physical adversity. And we're not talking like two fights there. Years. Charles, this was the this was the book on Charles Oliveira. Years. Talented, absolutely. Dangerous, absolutely. Struggled with his cardio, and if you could put physical damage on him, he would break down and shut down. That was the book. And it was accurate for a long time. To the point where people still, me included, think some of those things about him as he has become the best lightweight in the world and got on this ridiculous run he's currently on. Still struggling to shake that, despite a mountain of evidence to the contrary. And, uh, and again, that one's forged over years. But MMA fans, and not just fans, like media, uh, promoters, like they formulate their opinions of you fairly quickly. You got a couple of fights. And th- bear in mind, for better and worse... If you come into the UFC and you get a quick, brutal knockout, that is the reputation. Everyone will now expect that from you. And, I mean, uh, there was a a guy, you may not remember him, depending on when you got into the UFC. You got into the fandom. Um, There have been a few different guys who have had solid debuts. And this affords them a reputation that they never live up to again. Um... Guys like Che Mills or Terry Adam, who have a good fight or two, and because it's the first time you see them, you formulate very quickly this very solid opinion of them. And it takes effort, in some cases years of effort, to shake that reputation. Look, Usman only recently got over the reputation of being a boring control wrestler. He only got over that very recently, and again... We're talking a guy who had years of evidence to support that reputation. Kamaru Usman was a very, very dominant fighter before he, for a long time. But prior... I mean, he had, what, two finishes? Uh, I think before... Like, he just was not a finisher. If you look at his, his UFC career, yeah. He, wins his, he finishes his UFC debut, wins his season of The Ultimate Fighter. Uh... Three, four decisions in a row. Knocks out, gets one knockout. Four decisions in a row. Stops Colby Covington. Decision over Masvidal, which was more a return to his prior form. Then stops Burns, stops Masvidal, goes the distance with Covington. Like You look at what he had to do to kind of get away from the reputation that he spent years building. Uh, takes effort and time. And Edwards, to the point... His first several fights in the UFC, you know, you're going the distance. You're not having very fan-friendly fights. Uh, now, he's getting better, If you, and if you look at the technique and whatnot that he's employing along the way, it's impressive. But uh, to the people questioning, like, why does he have this reputation? Well, because it's also very easy to pull out highlights of anyone and go, look at this awesome thing they did. Why don't you think... You know, why do you think they suck? It's an awesome thing that they did. Like You can find stuff that, uh, you know, uh, that Edwards did in the Donald Cerrone fight that was genuinely great. Like, he 
he spent the first three rounds basically tearing Cerrone up with elbows anytime they clinched, and Cerrone would try to get away. Tore him up with them. What did he spend the last two rounds doing? You know, or that's a great moment. Uh, he did some not, he did some gnarly stuff to Nate Diaz when they fought at different points. But it's points. It's not it's not minute to minute, round to round. He's not the most engaging fighter in real time. Now, again, he's very good, and he's very good at winning. You know, your two losses in the UFC. In 2014, you dropped a split decision to Claudio Silva when Silva was really good. And then you lost to Kamaru Usman, who went on to become the champion. And that's it, everybody. His UFC losses, those two. That's it. Has not lost since 2015 and that Usman fight. And frankly, none of the others have been that close. Like, he's had moments maybe where there's a bit of peril, and the Gunnar Nelson fight was split. I'd have to rewatch that fight to try and figure out uh, where I came down on that one. You know, it's not that Hoff, you know, when he fought Rafael Dos Anjos, Dos Anjos had moments of success, but it was a pretty clear... What's the decision on that? Was it 4-1? to Two 4-1s, one 5-0. Oh. Like, not, that was not controversial. You know, the, I mean, even the scoring of the Diaz fight, like, that's not controversial. He won four of those five rounds by a wide margin. Congratulations, he wins the fight. Like, you only need to win one more round than your opponent to win the fight. He won four of five easily. When I say easily, that doesn't mean the fight was easy, but those scorecards were easy to turn in. No, you don't need a lot of deliberation on the first four rounds of that fight. And, but... It's just that the best he looked, if we're talking like fan engagement, the best, his comeback fight from some injuries when he fought Bilal Muhammad uh, and COVID, like COVID wrecked him. Like, that fight with Bilal Muhammad before the eye poke, he was beating the crap out of Bilal Muhammad. Like, he looked good. He looked really sharp. He was tagging Muhammad. He was avoiding counters, uh, hurting Muhammad. Like he, he messed him up a little bit before that, before the foul. Really unfortunate because, like I said, man, that was the best he'd looked in a long time. So, I wanted to, I want to make sure that I give Edwards his props here, because he's good at winning rounds. He's good about some control from half positions. He's pretty good about finding spots to land damage. His elbows in the clinch and when you're clinch breaking are really good. Like he's one of the few fighters who's actively looking for them. A lot of guys don't, they don't clinch break very well, and when they do, there's not a lot of defensive responsibility, so he's just happy to hit you in an in-between spot. He's got good kicks. You know, he, he's a fairly accurate striker. He can fight for five rounds. We've seen him do it. You know, Leon Edwards is a very, very good fighter. And I want to make sure that I say that, because there's a lot of people who are going to pick Kamaru Usman. I'm picking Kamaru Usman. But... There's a little bit of what I'm doing here, the same kind of thing I did for uh, Tyla Santos when she fought Valentina Shevchenko. There's a bit of an assumption that Usman is going to just win again because Usman is great, and Usman is great. And Usman's ability to switch stance could be a problem. His He's developed a very nice jab. He's got power. If he wants to just out-wrestle Leon Edwards again, he can. 
He's the better wrestler. Uh, it's not... It, there will not be the same disparity in that skill set that there was in their first fight. But I'm not going to pretend that I... At the moment, I don't believe Kamaru Usman is not the superior wrestler. Both men can fight five rounds. Both men have good cardio for the, for the duration. Essentially, the, va the vast majority of what you know is telling you to pick Kamaru Usman. And when that's the case, again, there's a lot of assumptions that get made. And there's a little bit of overlooking the other guy. Leon Edwards is the deserving number one contender. And that's saying something at welterweight, which is a very good division. In fact, I don't think welterweight has ever really been bad. If we're talking about divisional health. You know... Other divisions have kind of fluctuated up and down and up and down. Uh, welterweight has never—I don't—I don't think welterweight has ever been worse than the third best division in the UFC. Uh, it's probably number three now, behind either welter—might be number four actually. Hang on. Okay, it's never been worse than fourth because there was a time when the UFC only had four divisions. But at the moment, it's. I don't know where you would rank it in Featherweight, because I'm assuming Bantamweight and Lightweight are number one. In some capacity, the other one is number two. Then you got Featherweight, and Featherweight's a really good division. And then Welterweight would be behind that. But you could maybe argue Welterweight and Featherweight, actually, if we're talking divisional strength. You could maybe make the argument there. But the point being, like, it's never been a bad division. There has never been a point... When, I mean, even when, there was a period of time, this is back in, you know, ye olden days, when, I don't think it was controversial, Pride had better heavyweights and light heavyweights than the UFC. Their divisions were better than the UFC's. And, again, the UFC, either apologists or revisionists, won't, like, won't tell you that. But, that, but that's the truth. I know I was there. Uh, the Pride heavyweight division, light years better. I, mean, I think even Dana White would admit that one. Light years better than the UFC's. Light heavyweight. They, this is the one they don't want to admit because, well, we've got Tito and Chuck and Randy. You didn't have anything in the UFC like the strength that you had in Pride with Vanderlei, Little Nog, Shogun, uh, Ricardo Arona, uh, Alistair Overeem when he fought at 205. Uh, oh, who's the other guy? There's another name in there that needs to be mentioned, and I can't for the life of me remember. Uh, Rampage. Uh, Kevin Randleman actually would fight a light heavyweight. But Rampage definitely deserves to be in that conversation. Like, it, there was no competition if we're talking roster depth. At that point in time... Yeah, so even then, even when there's a legitimate disparity in divisional strength between two promotions... The UFC had the better welterweight division. Um, this would have been lightweight in Pride. As Pride didn't have light heavyweight, they had heavyweight, middleweight. Uh, welterweight and lightweight. So, when you look back at some of those other things, you have to kind of adjust the weight classes in your head. Uh, the UFC's 170-pound division was better. Uh, it, it just was. And it's never been a bad division. Leon Edwards being the number one contender says a lot about him. And there's a lot of people who are going to overlook him here. And I, I'm picking Usman 
being very clear about this, picking Usman. I just I think he's the better fighter. I think he's he's one of the best fighters in the world right now. Uh, where exactly you place him on that list? Again, that will vary. But he is great. We are witnessing a genuinely historic title run. I don't know if he'll ever surpass George St. Pierre in some respects. But Usman has never lost in the UFC. He's got. Does he have the longest UFC winning streak yet? He's up there. We'll look at that. Um, because he has the most consecutive wins in uh, welterweight history. He's got 15. Dude's got 15 fights in the UFC and has not lost and has not been all that close to losing. Um, yeah. So, I'm picking him. Uh, so, I, all I want to say is a lot of people are going to sleep on Leon Edwards because they have a slight, they have an outdated understanding of his skill set, or they view him as boring. And there's the assumption of Kamaru's continued greatness. Plenty of reasons to pick Usman here, but Leon Edwards is not here by accident. And Usman might go out there and win. He might finish him. He might win a wide decision. Wouldn't shock me. Do not be shocked if Edwards wins. That's all I'm saying. He is an exceptional fighter in his own right. He's on a long unbeaten streak. He is good about winning rounds. He is very good about finding uh, success in control positions. And he is not coming into this fight to lose. Picking Usman. I'm going to pick Usman. I'm going to pick Usman until he loses. So I mean, at welterweight. I'm, I don't care who they put against him at this point. I'm going to pick Usman. But don't be surprised if Leon Edwards pulls this off. He's very, very, very good. I'm not, I won't be shocked if he wins a decision, even. I won't be shocked if he submits Usman. I, the only way he could win that would genuinely surprise me is if he comprehensively out-wrestles Usman for five rounds. That's it. Literally anything else will not surprise me at all. Uh, but this is... That's your top fight at welterweight. Picking Usman. Darn good fight. Co-main event. Middleweights. Uh, Luke Rockhold and Paulo Costa... I don't know what to make of this. Um, l let me get my pick out of the way. I'm picking Costa. Um, for a variety of reasons. But <laughs> when I say I don't know what to make of this, here's what I mean. Um, Luke Rockhold has not fought since July of 19 when he fought up at light heavyweight and got knocked out by Jan Blachowicz. That was July of 19, so he's been out of action for over three years. He got knocked out by Yoel Romero before that in 2018, so very inactive. He's dealt with injuries, he's dealt with other stuff, like, I don't quite know what to make of that. Then on the other side, we have Costa, who is crazy. 
A little bit of the Brazilian crazy in that guy. He's on a two-fight losing streak. Um, I, th I think Israel Adesanya broke something in that man's head when they fought. Like You look at his fight with Marvin D Vittori. You know, he's he, lo he loses a point for his repeated fouls. Uh, he takes the fight and then insists to be bumped up to light heavyweight during fight week. And Vittori agrees because the UFC would have never forgiven him if he had refused. It loses a decision that was... What was that? That wasn't fight of the night... But it was a decent fight. If we're talking about that. Uh, yeah, Vittori wins 48-46. Yeah, there was the point deduction. There's the point deduction for Costa. So three rounds to two. Uh, and that was October of last year. So he, one, he's he's out for almost a year from the loss to Adesanya to the fight with Vittori. Now he's. <laughs> Been out for, again, not a full year, but 10 months. Let's call it 10 months, just for the sake of rounding. 10 months. And he's been weird. Like, these two, were, they, they were supposed to fight at UFC 277 in July. I don't know why it got bumped. But uh, would it be all that surprising if it was something to do with Costa? Look, I'm, I'm picking Costa because I just think he's in a slightly better career position. He's been a bit more active than Rockhold. He's got a physical style that Rockhold has struggled to deal with. Like, Rockhold doesn't do well with people that hit him consistently. Uh, and Rockhold's very good, and I'm not going to be surprised if he wins. But just most of what I look at when I'm trying to pick a fight, I'm going to pick uh, lead me to pick Costa here. But that's a weird one. That, that's just a weird fight. Uh, and hopefully it stays at middleweight, but we'll see what Costa gets into. Uh, your next fight, great fight here. Great fight here. Jose Aldo against Marab Dwellish, really. Ooh, I can see this fight going either way. I really can. Um, Dwellish, really's motor. Like, watch that man fight. Pick any of his fights. I don't care which one. Look at the effort he is expending and how consistently he does it for the entire fight. I don't know what that guy... I don't know how. I genuinely do not know how he exerts himself at that level, at that pace, for that long. His his motor, his engine, his cardio, it is insane. Like, genuinely might be the craziest cardio I've ever seen in MMA. It's 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 absolutely nuts. Aldo has had cardio issues in the past. This could be a problem here. But we're only three rounds. And Dwellis Reilly's game plan is largely to out to be tough, and he's very tough, and then outwork you and out-wrestle you. I'm not saying that can't work against Aldo. I am saying if Marlon Moraes was able to hurt Dwellis really as badly as he was, and he was, 
Um, and I mean, Cody Stamen had my, had bits of success. Like, he's on this long winning streak as Dwellish really. Like he hasn't lost since he fought Ricky Simone in 18. That's what seven wins. Yeah. He's really hard. It's hard to beat that guy. But if your plan is his kind of open, sloppy striking leading into wrestling exchanges, and then you know, working his, his crazy pace and trying to out-wrestle and you know, tie up and wear down Jose Aldo, I got bad news for you, buddy. That's what Jose Aldo's style is designed to beat. Everything he does is about stopping what Dwalish really wants to do, and that's before we get to a specific matchup. Like, of course, if you're gonna fight the guy, I want my I want to stop his takedowns. I want to deal with his striking. I want to hurt him. Like, that's. But Jose Aldo has been stopping guys like this for what ten years, at least. Don't check out. Since he got to the since he got to the WEC basically, so yeah, 2018. Aldo has been dealing with guys who have somewhat powerful but a little bit less refined striking, trying to wrestle him and trying to make him fight at a pace he can't sustain. Twelve years, fourteen? No, wait, fourteen. Hang on, 10, yeah, give or take, again, well over a decade, this man has been fighting guys trying to do what Dwellish really does, and beating them uh, for the, by far and away, the majority of the time. Now, that said, Aldo is getting up there. 35. He's 35, but that's 35, and he's been fighting since 2014, 2004. Excuse me, not 14. 04. So, you know, we're coming up on 20 years. This man's been fighting. That adds up, and maybe it adds up here, and maybe you know, Dwalis really's pace, and he's able to gut through some of the big shots, and maybe. Absolutely going to acknowledge that's it. That is on the table. Real possibility. But Aldo's a defensive savant, almost. A powerful counterpuncher. A guy with lights out takedown defense. I'm picking Jose Aldo here. Not going to be shocked if he can't sustain it against Wallace Really, Not going to be surprised. But... Who do I think is going to win this? This is almost Aldo's comfort zone if we're talking stylistically. Dwalis really can't not come forward. And he's going to... Even if Dwalis really wins, he's going to walk... He's going to have to deal with some powerful stuff coming back from Aldo. And maybe he can. Maybe he can. But... I'm I'm picking Aldo here. And Aldo's late career like rebirth at Bantamweight is genuinely miraculous. So, that's the stuff I'm excited to talk about as far as this fight card goes. 
Uh, the rest of this we will not take nearly as long talking about. Heavyweights! Marcin Tabora and Alexander Romanov. Um, Tabora's kind of a decent, high-ish level gatekeeper. Coming off of a loss to Alexander Volkov in his last fight. Um, Romanov unbeaten. Uh, what, 4-0 in the UFC? Get that forearm choke win. <laughs> 5-0, excuse me. Uh, Romanov, he seems to be, uh, he seems to be the ascendant party here, whereas Tabora is just kind of the same place he's always been. Uh, light heavyweights, Tyson Pedro and Harry Hunsucker. Pretty easy pick of Pedro here. Um, I mean, he, he just came, he came back earlier this year from a long layoff. We was dealing with all kinds of injury complications. Uh, I've said this before about Pedro. Like, if you look at some of his fights in the UFC that he lost... You kind of go, you should have won that. Like, he should have beat Ovin St. Prue. He had him beaten and then got suckered into fighting stupidly. He should have beaten Mauricio Shogun Hua. Had him dead to rights and then got lazy in the last round. Um, he's, I have no problem picking him to beat Harry Hunsucker. So that's your main card. Again, those top three fights, those are great. The rest of it, eh. Uh, as for the prelims, we only have three fights listed at the moment. I'm going to assume their announced fight is going to wind up there. Um, lightweight Leonardo Santos against Jared Gordon. Man, Santos, if he could fight with any degree of regularity. Like, he's been with the UFC a long time, believe it or not. He started in 2013. But there's a period of time he missed a couple of years. There's a period of time when he was fighting once a year. That's kind of where he is now. Um, Should have beaten Clay Guida. His last fight, still mad that wasn't stopped in his favor, partially because I hate Clay Guida, but <laughs> um, yeah, Jared Gordon uh, lost to Grant Dawson, but turned in a heck of a fight. Um, it's a good fight. That's a good fight. I'm going to pick Santos, I think. Not really. Yeah, I think I am, but that's that's marginal. Uh, women's bantamweight, Wu Yanan and Lucia Pudilova. Um, Pudilova is coming back to the UFC. She was cut in 2020 after a four-fight losing streak. She has gone 5-1 and one since then to come back. Good for her. Um, Wu is on a three-fight losing streak. Jeez. Yeah, this is winner go home for her. I'm going to pick Pudilova, actually, but I'm not confident in that. Featherweight, Sean Woodson and Luis Saldana. Sean Woodson, one of the most absurd featherweight frames you'll ever see. The man is six foot two. He's taller than me. He got 78 inches of reach. The man's enormous for featherweight. Uh, I, I have no problem picking him to beat Saldana. I'm not anything against Saldana, but... Yeah, that, that's a pretty easy call. Sean Woodson is a... If he gets it together, um, physically and whatnot, like that... He's just huge. He's a huge man for featherweight. I, I watched the guy fight and I still don't believe. Like, how does this guy who's six foot two make 145? But he does. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put the announced fight here in this section, and if I'm wrong about his placement, I'm wrong. Um, Miranda Maverick and Shauna Young... 
Young coming off a win, but that's her first win in the UFC. Whereas Maverick, I thought, got a raw deal when she fought Macy Barber. The loss to Aaron Blanchfield was legitimate, but she rebounded, beating Sabina Mazzo. I'm going to pick Maverick here. Um, the early prelims, welterweights, AJ Fletcher and Angelosa. Probably Fletcher. Flyweight, Francisco Figueredo and Amir Albazi. I want to say that's Albazi, actually. Figueredo's coming off a win. He knee-barred Daniel Lacerda. It was a nice knee-bar, actually. Uh, that, that's a tough one. That's actually a tough one. I, um... I think it is. I'm going to pick Figueredo, but I'm not. I might regret that. Like, I, I've got a feeling about Albazi in that one. Might be very wrong, but. Uh, Bantam rates Arichi Long and Jay Perrin. How's Mr. Arichi Long been doing? Finally got his first win in the UFC. Um, back at Bantamweight, his first two fights were at Flyweight. Bantamweight seems a bit healthier for him. Perrin has fought in the UFC before. Take a quick look at his record. Because he's fought... I know he's fought in the UFC. I just am not entirely sure. He's 10-5. and five. Uh, Lost to Mario Bautista back in February. Okay. Hmm. That's a tough one. I think I'm going to lean towards Ordichi Long, actually, and just I'm prepared to be very, very incorrect about that one. And kicking everything off at flyweight, Daniel Lacerda and Victor Altamariano. Um, probably... Uh, Daniel... Yeah, yeah, he's, he's listed weird. Altamariano has lost his debut in the UFC to Carlos Hernandez. Pretty decent fight, as I recall, though. Uh, Lacerda... Listed here as Daniel Da Silva. 0-2 in the UFC. Lost to Jeff Molina and the aforementioned Francisco Figueredo. I think I'll lean towards Altamariano, but that's a lean. And not one I'm terribly... Not confident. Not confident. Put it like that. Uh, yeah, so that's UFC 278, which I will be covering... Uh, Saturday in the MMA Zone of 411mania.com. So, if you're aware if and available, please do stop by, say hello. I always appreciate it. All right, let's move on to some news of the week. Uh, let's start with this one. Rory McDonald, former uh, title challenger in the UFC, he is retired from MMA. He was in a uh, his fight in the PFL on Friday. Friday? Saturday? Can't remember. Um, that might have been Saturday, actually. Either way, he was fighting, um... Uh, let me double-check this gentleman's name. Uh, Delano Taylor. Might be mispronouncing his first name. Uh, this was... I, I don't think this was the... This might have been the finals, uh, for that one. But anyway, he, uh, Taylor... Knocked out Roy McDonald in the first round. First round? I have to double-check that, because that's not listed there. I forgot that part in my notes. My notes on PFL are a little bit slipshod, so I apologize for that. Um, let's have a look here. This would be PFL 8 for the 2022 season. 
do to do start of the playoffs so this was the semi-finals and yeah taylor knocked uh, stopped him in the first round um also on the same card actually juan adams lost um i will never forgive juan adams for making greg hardy look competent when they fought uh yeah but neither here nor there in some respects um yeah, McDonald announced that he's retiring after the loss. Not terribly surprising. His career's not been uh, had a upward trajectory in a long time. Um, he turned in. He is one half of one of the best fights you will ever see. If you have not seen his title fight with Robbie Lawler, look it up. Genuinely, million percent, one of the greatest fights you'll ever see. Oh. Forgot to mention this. Let me go back very briefly. UFC on ESPN 41. I said I was going to talk about it. Apologize. Getting to it later. Yet yeah, Daniel Cormier on commentary for this event was awful. Just awful. Um, Cormier's style of commentary has never been what I like out of a commentary team, out of a commentator. But I understand that when he's on his game... What he brings to the table does appeal to a segment of the fan base. It's a non-trivial one, and I understand why he has the job. I mean, last night was just the worst example of him not, him just like podcasting rather than calling a fight. And those are very different things. Uh, it it was just awful. Wouldn't talk about the fight half the time. Just, just endless banter. Just, just podcasting, like just podcasting. Uh, I don't know if there was a different producer for this who wasn't able to get in his ear. I don't know if Brendan Fitzgerald just couldn't quite exercise the same degree of control that he might in other circumstances. I don't know if it was something about the dynamic between Cormier and Bisbing for this night. I don't know, but boy, was it just grating. Just bad. Bad night at the office for Cormier on that one. Very bad. Back to McDonald. I my I got stuck thinking about that in that moment because the fight between McDonald and Lawler is called by uh, Mike Goldberg and Joe Rogan, and Mike Goldberg was not a good <laughs> not a good commentator, <laughs> just not good at his job, just not good at his job. And that got me thinking about Daniel Cormier again. But th- the point being there. Lawler and McDonald's one of the few times when elements of Goldberg's presentation seem to fit the moment. Very few of those. Very few of those, but this was one of them. That is un- one of the best fights ever. Some people have it as the best fight ever. I don't argue with them. If that's your best fight in MMA history, that's a very worthy choice. But it also, that was it for him. Like, um, He and Robbie Lawler both left giant chunks of themselves in that cage that night. Lawler still turned in a decent, another fight of the, another all-time great in his next fight when he fought Condit. I thought Condit should have won that fight. But is it any wonder that Robbie Lawler fell off a cliff after those two fights? Like, your back-to-back fights are that absolute blood and guts, bloody war with Roy McDonald, and then a brutal 
movie, like like Rocky style fight with Carlos Condit that you barely scrape by on the skin of your teeth. Like, yeah, you're never the same after those types of fights. Ever. That's just reality. Uh, McDonald was never the same after that fight. And it's unfortunate, but uh, that's what it is. You know, so thank you to Roy McDonald uh, for some of the great, some truly, truly awesome fights. Thank you. And best of luck in whatever comes next for you, man. Uh, also, in the martial arts world, uh, some sad news. We had sad news last week with the murder of Leandro Lowe. This week, uh, Judo Jean LaBelle passed away. He was 89, I believe. Something like that. 88, 89. Um, yeah, he passed away during the week. Uh, God, what do you say about Jean LaBelle? Never met the man. But if you look at every, look at what people who ever interacted with him said about him that'll tell you everything you need to know boss rootin has a nice has a great facebook post about him they met briefly uh his bit (laughs) if you haven't seen it um i don't know if it's still up or not it might not be but if you can find the video of his appearance on the joe rogan experience it's hilarious uh because he gets one of the other guys is there with him and rogan is kind of talking with him about different positions and whatnot and he said, okay, come here, you know, get this you know, little, this kid, put air quotes around kid. And, okay, come here, let me, let me demonstrate. And the, this guy knows, like, no, you're going to hurt me <laughs> because that's what, dude, if you've never, if you've never had the opportunity to, if you don't train at all, you won't appreciate this. But if you've never trained with some, with, with some of the old timers like that, it's a unique experience. Uh, and I, I mean that in a very good way. And you know, like, okay. Yes, here, I can't hurt you here. Let me demonstrate just a little bit why this hurts. And because I just kind of feel like messing with you a little bit, just a little bit extra. And yeah, that really... Again, it's it's unique. It's a unique experience. Uh, it, I've not had the opportunity all that often, but the couple of times I have, uh, I've taken a lot away from it. Uh, he was instrumental in kind of bringing judo into uh, into the American judo system. A uh, very influential professional wrestler, uh, kind of a trainer as well. Like he, he worked pro wrestling. Was part in arguably one of the first MMA fights, a mixed rules fight. Uh, if you're not familiar with that, feel free to look it up. Uh, great stuntman. You know, did did a lot of work with other, you know, with choreography and stunt people. Uh, and you know, did a lot of training with you know, the uh, again the Olympic, you know, the American you know, International Judo Program. Uh, life well lived for that guy. Um, I need to get a copy of his book if I can find it, actually. Because I saw, I saw a copy of it, and I meant to grab it, and I wound up looking for it online. And if you look for it on some of the more traditional sites, it's ludicrously expensive. I need to see if I can find a, a different copy of it. But he's got several books, actually. The one I'm, the one I'm thinking of is like the the Encyclopedia of. Uh, for wrestling finishing holds. Which is a great... Uh, need to find that one. But yeah, we lost... Uh, the, the martial arts world lost Gene LaBelle this last week, and his contributions to the martial arts community in general, and you know, be that specifically MMA or judo or whatnot, just all of it. Uh, great personality. Unless you're, you know, Steven Seagal, apparently, who's... 
I'm not going to pick a fight with Steven Seagal. I'm, just, I'm not going to do it on this particular platform. But suffice to say, the vast majority of people he ever interacted with had positive interactions with him. So, uh, to w- whatever awaits him on the other side of the veil, uh, I wish him good luck. And to his family and friends, you know, I, uh, I, I mourn with you. Not that I knew him the way you did, but it's one of the... I don't talk about my, my religious beliefs a lot here for obvious reasons. It's not relevant. But when it comes to something like this, you know, one of the things that uh, people of my faith agreed to do is to mourn with those that mourn and comfort those that stand in need of comfort. So from whatever whatever value you want to put on my condolences, they are sincere in this instance. Uh, I'm sorry for your loss. I, I, I truly am. And the, again, the entire martial arts community around the world uh, and in the United States in, sp- in sp- uh, particular was better for Gene LaBelle's participation in it. Alright. Uh, that's all I've got for listed notes here. Let me check Twitter, see if anything crazy has happened. If not, we will do plugs and get out of here. Uh, I suppose the last thing I want to say this do- dovetails back to Roy McDonald very briefly before we get into plugs. You know, we've had a lot of retirements over the summer. And look, this is somewhat inevitable, uh, right? You're going to get surges of retirements, surges of, especially, you start watching, you watch for a long time. This happens, these come in waves in some cases. But we've had a lot of them this summer. We had Ioana Yanjacek, Zabit Magomed Sharipov, Donald Cerrone, James Krause, Uriah Hall, who retired last week, uh, Jessica I, Eddie Wineland. You've know, been a chunk of them over the last few months, right? That's like four months or so been a chunk been a chunk of them and uh, yeah so again just add Roy McDonald to that list now uh, let's see yeah I don't necessarily think anything else is uh, I don't see anything else that's broken necessarily so Let's get on to plugs. Uh, let's see. Last week there was a review of Bullet Train. It's myself, Mark Radlich, and Alexis Haina. We reviewed that on Damn You Hollywood. Uh, this week, the usual spate of professional wrestling coverage. That, oh, I covered my Monday Night Raw last week, actually. I got a uh, last-minute thing. I called in to do that, so... If you're interested, my review of Raw is up there in the Wrestling Zone of 411 Mania. This week, uh, again, AEW's Dark Elevation on Monday. It's my usual gig. If MLW releases something, I will cover it on Thursday. WWE SmackDown on Friday and the UFC event on Saturday. If you're interested in my other podcasts, this week, Damn You Hollywood will look at... Oh, what is it? It's one of the streaming movies. I can't remember if it's Prey or Gray Man. Prey! Gray Man is next week. So we, uh, myself, Mark Radulich, and who else is on that one with us? Might just be the two of us, actually. Huh. All right. If it's just the two of us, it's just the two of us. I think there's another person joining us, but I can't find that listed here. Uh, we will be talking Prey, the latest entry into the Predator franchise that is currently streaming on Hulu. Uh, the good, the bad, the ugly, and all otherwise. So tune in for that on Tuesday if you're so interested. You can find that. By typing Damn You Hollywood into your podcast platform of choice if you want to watch it live. 
Uh, we stream on Twitch at W2M Network, I believe is the handle, or W2M Net. I'll double check that. There was some, there was some dispute over that, uh, some behind the scenes stuff that I will not get into here. So I'll, I'll double check the specific Twitch account. But if you want to do that, watch us do that live. We do it live, or the YouTube channel for that as well. Anyway, you can find that. We talk movies. It's a good time. All right, that's it for me. We will be back here next week to review UFC on uh, UFC, UFC 278, and we will preview. We will not preview. Wow, a week. I get a week off. Holy crap! I am shocked. Yeah, August 20th. There is not one August 27th. The next event after that is the UFC in France. That will be September 3rd. I don't know what I will do with a free Saturday. I am... I am... Uh, wow! I got a week to think about that one. <laughs> hey! Alright. Back here next week. Review UFC 278. Uh, and talk news. Again, as we usually do. So, until then, thank you all as always. I deeply appreciate it. Stay safe out there and continue to be well, be safe, and behave.